What Tolkien seemed to intuit here is that the Middle Ages, and specifically the literature of the Middle Ages, functioned like a root screen. Uh, you could say it mm -hmm. framed mm -hmm. the holy, it framed the sacred by, because why do we have a screen there? Why, do you, why would you have a curtain there? By marking something off as holy, you show mm -hmm. that it is holy. Without that, it's just a stage. Well, hello, and uh, welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Today, we have Richard Rowland. And what he's going to do, essentially, is all things English. Because he's a philologist, and he's a historian, and he's dedicated. And he's going to walk us through these the fine-tuned apparatus of Western history and how the English story is in many ways the oldest story in terms of its relationship to Orthodox Christianity. That's today on Wattar. Well, you're, you're back with us. The last time we talked a little bit about immersion, culture, and yeah. missionary work. Today, I want to talk about your man, uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, the concepts that are built in there, and then this uh, theology of sub-creation, among other yeah. things. So tell us, you've got a podcast project going right now. Yeah, well, so I've got a couple of podcasts. Well, I, I should I should preface it by saying I'm one of the hosts of the Ammon Sewell podcast, mm -hmm. uh, which is a dedicated podcast looking at the works of J.R.R. Tolkien from an Orthodox perspective. So if you want to like hear just every thought I've ever had about Tolkien and Orthodoxy and old world stuff, you can, you know, people can go and those podcast episodes, they're like two hours long. So there's plenty of stuff deep. out there. People, mm -hmm. people are listening. Yeah, we try to go, try to go deep. Uh, but the other podcast project that I'm working on right now is something called uh, the Great Rood Screen. Um, and it's the story of early English Christianity. So in other words, Christianity from uh, the conversion of the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes um, up to the Norman conquest. So there's about a, you could say like a four or 500 year period right in there uh, mm -hmm. where we see a very beautiful form of Christianity come to life and flourish uh, before, uh, before it, it, uh, um, it doesn't really die off with, with the Norman conquest. That's one of the myths that I'm going to try to debunk, but it definitely changes. Give us, and, give us context. What year would you say you started to see the formation of something we can call English Christianity? And then what, what do the Normans do to it that, that yeah. definitely changes it? Yeah. So the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons started at the very end of the sixth century, and it's completed more or less uh, by the middle of the seventh century. Um, and so part of, part of this, part of what's going on is that there are actually sort of two waves of conversion. The first one, is from the Celts, uh, like the in the north, and like the Irish, um, and that wave is not totally successful. And then there's a second mission uh, wave, missionary wave that's sent by Pope Saint Gregory the Great uh, from Rome and uh, Augustine of Canterbury. And this is a much more successful, you know. So, but sort of between the two of them, so it's like, um, and what that that eventually, of course, you have sort of. Christianity from Rome and Christianity from Ireland, and they kind of come into a little bit of conflict. And the Anglo-Saxon kings who are sitting uh, at the Synod of Whitby and some other places, people make a bigger deal of this than it is, again, mm -hmm. uh, because the similarities between the two things were 
I mean, you know, like say 98% and they were arguing about a 2% difference, right? So it's, it's, you know, um, this is one of those things that gets inflated nowadays, partly because the things that they were arguing about, things like the manner of tonsure, the dating of Easter and things like this were much more important at the time because of, you could say the way, uh, the way that people in, uh, to use your language, like in an old world kind mm -hmm. of a setting, value certain things is different than the priority we place on things in right. in a new world setting. So most people know that uh, the, well, I shouldn't say most people, but many people know that at the time of the great schism and the, the, de the, the decades and centuries leading up to it, um, obviously the filioque is the thing that people key into now is this is a big problem. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the big issue. The and it is a big to issue. the creed. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It is a big issue. But we key into that now because it's an idea. And to us, ideas are what are important. But if you'd asked somebody at the time, they would have said the filioque is, is as important or maybe even secondary in importance to the fact that the Latins had begun uh, using unleavened bread in the Eucharist, and whereas the East were continuing their tradition of using leavened bread in the Eucharist. And that this difference between leaven or unleavened on both sides, okay, on both sides seemed to many people. Uh, who were holy and God-fearing people to be a bigger deal, maybe, or at least as big a deal as the filioque. Mm -hmm. So because we don't, uh, because our, our existence is less embodied, right? We tend to, when we see something like that, we're like, oh, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That's that, you know, what a, uh, 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 what a silly thing to be, um, <laughs> what a silly thing to be uh, uh, hung up over. Um, whereas the filioque, oh yeah, that's, that's an important thing. Cause that's an idea. Right. And so there's this, this misconception, you could say that the things that you think in your head, those are the real things. And then the, the way that you physically embody it, that's more or less incidental. And Which that's is kind ironic, of, right? Yeah. Because right. It, we're, yeah. we're a more materialistic society yeah. that tends yeah. to dismiss the importance right. of the material, which is odd right yeah yeah but i mean it's sort of it's sort of related uh there's a there's a uh you could say like a kind of gnosticism that folds yes. back on itself and becomes yes. materialism right. once once the proper relationship between these things has been decoupled now so. go back to that history because this yeah. is what this is what I, I love the history so the english missionary shall we say push from the south or yeah from europe is that would that be now known as what is that the thrust that becomes Western Christianity that we Orthodox would say is something like not quite right and the Celts had it closer to yeah. the Orthodox tradition or is that simplification? I, so I think basically that's an oversimplification. Okay. And one of the things that I want to do with this podcast is kind of address that idea a little bit. I see. Okay. Um, so. So yeah, so basically there are two bad takes that I'm trying to 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 work on, not not so much debunking, but maybe just addressing a little bit and adding some nuance. The first would be this idea that um, the English church from an Orthodox perspective, I mean, obviously the podcast is going to be on ancient faith radio, right? So it's an Orthodox podcast. We're, mm -hmm. we're looking at English Christianity mm -hmm. from a solidly Eastern Orthodox lens, right? Mm -hmm. But um so, so the first bad take would be basically something like Orthodox England. England was totally Orthodox. In fact, some people like Vladimir Loss will say that they actually stayed with the Eastern churches um, 
at the time of the great schism in 1054 and it wasn't until 1066 that you know when uh uh william the conqueror brought latin christianity to england that that's when the schism actually happened in england and um you know so, something like this yeah um which which i don't think is really correct at all um for never it, it it's not just wrong it's one of those things that's like wrong in multiple ways um and so it, it takes it'll take some time and some nuance to kind of address that um and it's certainly part the of case. the project is to, yeah. Is yeah. to filter it out it's certainly the case that at the year 1054 uh people in england probably wouldn't have thought of themselves as being in schism uh with for instance the patriarch of constantinople and they certainly sent lots of people you know mm-hmm. uh, young princes either if you're a young uh Anglo-Saxon prince, you went either to Constantinople or to Rome, you know, on pilgrimage or mm-hmm. to work as a mercenary and all these different things. Um, and it's, it's certainly the case they wouldn't have thought of themselves as being in schism because at the time, nobody knew that the great schism was the great schism. Right. You know, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's very me, clear. Do, yeah. do do this classic. Why does it like I can hear a non hist I, I know why it matters to me. Yeah. Why does it matter, though, in yeah. some ways? What's the legacy of this? English history vis-a-vis your faith, orthodoxy, yeah. my faith, in America today. So <laughs> this is kind of related to the other take that I'm also trying to address, which would be the idea. It's basically like Anglican branch theory, um, which, you know, Anglicans in the audience, not hating on you. Um, obviously, I don't agree with Anglican branch theory, but um, which is basically this idea that the English church represents like the third branch of historic Christianity and that the three branches of historic Christianity are therefore Rome and England and Constantinople, you know, something like that, which is of course, I mean, it's, it's also really funny because they, they make the classic, you could say like the classically British mistake of lumping all Eastern peoples together into just kind of like one category, you know, but, um, uh, and so, what I want to show is kind of, uh, first of all, the continuity of, of English Christianity with the, or with the Orthodox faith. I see. Um, and specifically, uh, I want to show how it's different, um, from, for instance, uh, what Anglicanism is now or what Roman Catholicism is now, or even what Eastern Orthodoxy is, you know, uh, but also how the things that are important and the things that are essential and the Orthodox faith are all present there in uh, Anglo-Saxon Christianity in a really beautiful way that should be something which we as speakers of the English language, um, I, I, I assume your people were Dutch. Um, yeah. 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 You know, yeah with, a name like, German. with a name like yours and my, and my people were mostly German, but we're all speakers of the English language and anyone who speaks the English language, which is, you know, a lot of the world, maybe the majority of the world, anyone who speaks the English language, is in some sense the descendant of the Anglo-Saxons and their culture is in, is to some extent also our culture. Yeah. And so when you, uh, so as a medievalist, this is, I mean, this is how I became Orthodox because I was a medievalist and I studied Anglo-Saxon Christianity and I found, oh man, this, this harrowing of hell thing, this is amazing. Oh, this, this, uh, this uh, kind of personification of the cross Right. You know, this, this dream of the rude, which is this, 
this prayer where the sort the cross kind of comes to life and intercedes for us mm-hmm. um, and all these different things. Like this is all really beautiful. And I've never heard of this before in my life as a, as a Protestant. So, so, and then when I came to an Orthodox church and you look up on the ceiling, it's like, Oh, there's the heroine of hell right there. We hear the pray the prayer to the cross, you know, Oh, most venerable and life giving cross of the Lord help us. Right. You know? So like, all these things just kind of like came back around full circle. So you didn't have, and this is to anybody out there, Orthodox or non-Orthodox, yeah. there's a, when someone converts to anything, there is an inclination, and this happened in me, to reject. And the rejection becomes the source of energy. And for yeah, me- Yeah, there's that dialectic process. Right. Yeah. You didn't, so I fled things English- Sure. Also, the language I, I enjoyed sitting in Slavonic litur- liturgies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and I've come around to be a less sort of radical or zealous. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have that moment? Were you always trying to inculcate and recapitulate this English story into your orthodoxy? Because you're a convert, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not just as a person. Like my my. Uh, my wife has a saying. She always says, I'm not an either or kind of girl. And she'll say that, you know, because we're talking about like dinner choices or we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. like, well, should we do this fun thing or this fun thing? Right. Um, so, so th- I mean, so this is the thing. I'm, I'm not an either or kind of guy. I am not. Uh, I've never been about the, that, that kind of dialectic process, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is like, I can only understand this new thing that I'm accepting within the framework of the stuff that I'm rejecting. Right. Um, and I, it does seem to me that most converts go through that process. Um, that wasn't my process. I mean, I did actually have to formally out loud in front of a bunch of people, including family and friends, uh, formally, you know, abjure and reject my, my previous errors as part of my reception into the Orthodox church. So I'm not saying. Was it a sit down? Like, no, no, no. This is like, this is before my, my, my reception. Um, oh, um, yeah. There was, was an announcement thing. of sorts. Yeah. I, I mean, there, it's a, it's a, one of the OCA uh, service books, one of the great, in the great book of needs, I think um, there's a oh, service in there oh, for okay. receiving somebody from uh, a reformed background. Um, and so I'm sort of from a reformed Baptist background. And so, and so there were, you know, I had to renounce iconoclasm. I had to renounce Calvinism. I had to renounce the sort oh, of, I see in a liturgical setting. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. No, like a living room liturg- with like yeah. your relatives or something. Yeah. No, no, but I did have family and friends who came to my reception. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, so I, so I say all that to say, I'm not saying I didn't reject my former errors or I think everything can carry over or poured over or something like that. Nothing, mm-hmm. no sloppy ecumenism or anything like that. But um, for me, the, the, the reason that I loved orthodoxy and knew it to be true is because I'd already, encountered all of those beautiful things uh you could say in like bits and pieces and then i came to orthodoxy and it was just all there together in a single place and that was one of the ways that it was very intuitive to me to say well i already love this this harrowing of hell thing you know which i mean there's an anglo-saxon poem called the harrowing of hell that was read liturgically on holy saturday um and if you look at the look at it it's based largely on the text of the gospel of Nicodemus, which is also the text, you know, the Eastern text on which most of our liturgical services and prayers and hymns and things like this around the, the whole descent into Hades are based. Mm. So this is a clear, I mean, it's a clearly Orthodox thing. The poem is totally Orthodox. You could say in its theology and outlook, 
it was written, you know, three or 400 years before the great schism. There's nothing unorthodox about that poem. Um, And so this is the thing that I want to show people is that there's continuity, there's something beautiful, and there are ruptures in that continuity. Obviously the great schism, scholasticism, that's one rupture. Another rupture that's maybe even sort of more important from a a strictly an English Christianity perspective is of course the reformation Uh, because the English Christ, the English reformation was, extremely iconoclastic um even more so i mean uh you know luther never burned a church down or burned relics you know uh uh, he he valued these things uh you can say what you want to say about luther being wrong about other stuff but uh but you wouldn't have you know there's this uh uh when uh cromwell was the you know, was basically the king of England. He wasn't the king, but you know, the protector, or whatever. Yeah, when he was running England, uh, he broke. He had every single stained glass window in, in England broken. He had you know the relics of the saints dug up and burned and scattered. He had all. He had every single organ in England burned because I mean, this is the thing we have to remember is that for Puritans, it wasn't just icons or, or, or the, the images of the saints and, and of Christ and of his mother or, or their relics. It wasn't just those things that were considered to be idolatrous. They considered music to be idolatrous, yeah. like beautiful music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so, I mean, this is from a musical history perspective, there's very little surviving sheet music in English from before uh, the, from before Cromwell's time, because it was all burnt. What does so, it mean to these cats? Yeah. Are the, these are the cats that got on, the ships to come that's settle America. That's the thing. Yeah. That's quite so a, this is, I mean, so this is the thing. Those were the, the, the guys that got on the ships and came over and settled America and American culture has always been very hesitant about the idea of, of beauty or hierarchy in a religious setting. Right. We're actually tend to be okay with it in a, in a civil setting. Right. So this is why we can have, a mural on the or fresco on the the ceiling of the United States Capitol, which shows the apotheosis of George Washington, you know, George Washington ascending into the heavens, being greeted by the classical goddesses and and deified like a Caesar. Right. So we're that's OK. We have a large temple to Abraham Lincoln so uh, in our nation's capital. That's OK. But can you imagine the general sort of response uh, from, you know, Thousands of thousands and millions of of young, bright-eyed evangelical kids like me who went on a field trip to the Lincoln Memorial when they were kids, right? Can you imagine how those same kids would feel if we removed the Lincoln Memorial and we put a giant shrine to the Virgin Mary in its place, right? Can you imagine? You know, Ooh. yeah, minds minds would blow, right? And so, anyway, I'm not saying this to pick on anybody. I, I hope that's oh clear, no, but, we're not worried about that. But yeah, this but, podcast feels like it's it's like an invitation to yeah which which i think all this subculture of sort of orthodox or neo platonic conversation is trying to do something like baptize all those yeah. english strands and say it's okay yeah. to talk in these ancient ways yeah it feels like yeah, your podcast so is doing that what i'm trying to do is something more like let's go back before elizabeth right it's really under elizabeth People always give like the whole Henry VIII, you know, thing a hard time. But Henry VIII considered himself a Roman Catholic uh, until the moment that he died. Um, but but it's really under Elizabeth that the English Reformation is born, no and doubt. it's really under Elizabeth that the Elizabethan Compromise 
you know, the whole idea of the Church of England as a via media, not between Catholicism and Protestantism, by the way, but between Calvinism and Lutheranism, but that's a different podcast. Mm. Um, uh, that's when the Elizabethan Compromise is born and all, all of this stuff, right? Um, and then it's the it's the Puritans who are saying, no, that's not far enough. Those guys leaving, mm-hmm. right, and coming mm-hmm. here, that's basically how we get the United States. And um, so what I want to try to do is to say, let's go back further. Okay. Let's go back to a time before Elizabeth and ask the question, what was, what was English Christianity actually like? Um, and I want to, you know, focusing specifically on the places where English Christianity was originally much more closely aligned with the rest of the apostolic tradition. Is this the Western right inclination? Not really. No, to me, this is not. Um, I mean, it, we're for, talking for about people this. who don't know Western right. Yeah. If you're an Orthodox Christian, there's liturgical traditions. Western Rite is a type yeah. of attempt to, again, like return to English Christianity that was in alignment with the Eastern liturgical tradition, something yeah. like that. And But that's different than what you're trying to yeah, remind this us is, about. Yeah. I mean, so we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast. Um, uh, obviously, I've, I've got no beef with Western Rite Orthodox people, um, and I've got a lot of very good friends um, and godparents in an Orthodox uh, Western Rite parish. So this is no beef with that, but that's not really what this podcast is about because what I'm trying to show, what I'm trying to show is that the Christianity of, of the English, and we are going to talk a little bit about Celtic Christianity as sort of setting up the background, but the podcast is really about English Christianity, is that the, the Christianity of the English, and this includes the literature produced by them, things like the Beowulf column, Okay, okay. Were, was fully orthodox. It was different in certain ways. Obviously, the liturgical rite would have been one of those ways, although there are probably more similar similarities there than people realize. But what I'm not what I'm trying to do is not say, hey, let's all LARP as Anglo-Saxons, but rather to say, for me, conservatism is always love of parents. Right. And so what I'm trying to say is as an English speaking person, these are your parents, these are your ancestors. And this is how they worship God. And this is what they were doing on Holy Saturday. And it's yeah. really the same thing that you're doing on Holy Saturday now. Yeah. It's really the same thing you're doing on Pascha now. And uh, and it's, so it's to help people sort of see that continuity of history um, as opposed to as opposed to feeling like there has to be a rupture. Well, I'll just say one thing, and I want to ask you about yeah. this 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 theology of subcreation. Yeah. I really identify with what you just said on this podcast because I, I don't wouldn't say I get in trouble, but people don't like that we lump the old world. I mean you're talking about you, you now you're parsing really particular Christian yeah. moments right in Western Europe, but I'm lumping in this really ridiculous way where a Muslim and a Christian, an Orthodox Christian and I don't know a Zoroastrian have more in common than say an enlightened uh evangelical conservative Christian in America. But I do think when you do the analysis correctly, it does teach, you know, in a way that that allows for us to get out of our own sort of episte, our own way of knowing for a moment to so we can see ourselves a little clearer. And so I I know this risk that that you run, right, of kind of confusing Uh, for instance, in the East, the Ethiopians always fall in. People always, 
you did some great stuff with Peugeot and Ethiopia. I loved it. And then, you know, you can hear the naysayers. Well, it's not the same. And of course we know it's not the same, but it's an instructional piece to really help us understand ourselves. Right. And it doesn't mean we're liturgically bound now to right. be brothers with, with an Ethiopian. Uh, but it's complicated, but it's important that it's complicated. We shouldn't yeah. make it less complicated than it is. Right. And someone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, as far as what you should do liturgically, you should do whatever your bishop says and whatever your parish does. Like, like that's that's it for me. It's like, you know, uh, and and the way that we pray at home, we don't mix and match these prayers and these prayers, right? Like, we have the prayer book and we have, you know, prayer rule that our our, our spiritual father gave us, and we try to keep to that. And if we don't, then we'll confess it. But right. but you know, we so, so I'm not telling people, hey, mix and match, you know, or something like this, but. Um, but I mean, somebody like St. Cuthbert, for instance, good example, right? St. Cuthbert is like, he's like the Anglo-Saxon St. Seraphim. So St. Seraphim of Sarov is my patron saint. Mm. Uh, and I really love him. And if you read the life of St. Cuthbert and you look at the way that he prayed and the, the ascetic life that he led. And if, in fact, if you look at the ascetic life, lives of all of the Anglo-Saxon saints, there's not a single one of them that would have been out of place in Constantinople or out of place on the Holy Mountain. Not Richard, a single one. We just went and took uh, our field worker. His name is is Alistair, but he's baptized Oswald. And he just joined. And we went to the UK. Guess where we went? We went to St. Oswald's Well yes. with Father Seraphim Aldea. And oh, that's it, so great. That's his guy, uh, Ozzy, who is now in George, the Georgian Republic. He working for us. He is his spiritual son and was baptized. We went there for his baptism. And oh, let man. me tell you, the well water was running. And there he was baptized in that water. And then oh, my I felt that oldness uh -huh. appropriate to the same thing I felt in, in Georgia, the same thing I yeah. felt in Ethiopia. It's an oldness that is true. It applies. Yeah, yeah it was real cool. Yeah. That, that whole idea of, of like the Christian household, you know, the ecumen, right? The, the, mm. the, you know, this is a Christian household in my father's house. There are many mansions, you know, or, or you know, it's really something like in my father's tent, there are many partitions, you know, right. uh, but, but, uh, uh, and I'm not, again, this is not intended to be sloppy, sloppy ecumenism. I'm not saying that all of these, you know, things are the same now or something like that, but we can go back to a, a time where you did have these different expressions of apostolic Christianity that were more similar than they were different. Yeah. And that's the thing. Those are the things that, that I really feed off of and enjoy. So I can sit down and I can read the Beowulf poem, which was certainly written by an Orthodox monk monk sometime in the seven hundreds. Right. Interesting. I can, I wow. can read, I can sit down and read something like, um, even like later stuff, Middle English stuff. Uh, there's a Middle English rendering of of uh, several of, of a lot of the Dionysian corpus, right? And so I can read that, and you know, this is just the theology of Saint Dionysius the Areopagite, right? But in Middle English, yeah, and things like that. So I can read that stuff and enjoy that. And uh, for people who are, if that's your deal, then I want I want other people to kind of experience that same joy and that feeling of the feeling of closeness, that feeling of of uh, well, St. Cuthbert could walk into my church hmm. and he wouldn't understand the language because English has changed a bunch. And he uh, would be a little bit unfamiliar with the liturgy 
although probably a lot more familiar with like matins or vespers or something, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe a little unfamiliar with the format of the liturgy, but he would know exactly where he was and he would know exactly that he, he, he would absolutely know that he was in church. And he would understand you know? the mystical yeah. machinations of what's yeah. happening around him. Right. And, you know, as a holy man, certainly. Right. But I also believe that's true of St. Paul. Hmm. You know, if, if, if St. Paul were to uh, uh, rise from the dead and come and walk into our church one Sunday morning, I mean, stranger things have happened. Um, then I, I feel very comfortable, you know, very confident that he would know where he was, even though obviously a lot has changed in 2000 years. Well, I, that goes to the enlightenment. We can talk yeah. about that, but so yeah. what's this theology of, of sub-creation? Yeah. So I get at, so the, the thing uh, where I'm a little, I've been a little rambly, but uh, the, the thing that kind of started me down this road is this little quote from Tolkien, which I'll, it's very short. Um, uh, and this is this is uh, the setting here is a conversation between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien when they're both very young. Obviously, they're very famous friends. Like a lot of friends, they had ins and outs, ups and downs. Um, and like most people, uh, humans, they eventually came to certain you could say like boundaries in their relationships. You know, like a river that I can't cross. I can look to you from the other side, but I can't go there with you, right? Hmm. Um, and uh, so but they're both Christians. Lewis is Church of England. And at the time, he's very solidly, the, you could say, like the low church category, mm -hmm. although he does kind of get higher church as he gets older. Mm -hmm. um, and so for Lewis, the Middle Ages held a great deal of beauty and attraction, just like, you know, classical Greece did. But there were certain medieval ideas and practices, which he could intellectually engage with the fact that that had been a thing, but he couldn't enter into it himself. And the veneration of the saints is uh, one of the biggest of these objections. In fact, Lewis seems to have had almost like a nervous breakdown uh, several years later when a spiritual father of his, uh, who was a celibate Anglican clergyman, member of the Order of St. John the Divine, which is like this group of celibate Anglican clergy at the time, uh, tried to get him to pray the rosary and Lewis just couldn't do it. He sort of had a, a breakdown. Um, Tolkien, on the other hand, uh, for him, the faith of the Middle Ages was this vibrant living thing and uh and so tolkien recalls this is from his biography it says we were coming down the steps from magdalen hall this is at oxford long ago in the days of our unclouded association before there was anything as it seemed that must be withheld or passed over in silence i said that i had a special devotion to saint john uh, probably saint john the evangelist i think is the one he means mm -hmm. um of course john is his first name Lewis stiffened, his head went back, and he said something in the brusque, harsh tones, which I was to later hear him use again when dismissing something he disproved of. Well, I can't imagine any two persons more dissimilar. We stumped along the cloisters, and I followed feeling like a shabby little Catholic, caught by the, uh, caught by the eye of an evangelical clergyman of good family, taking holy water at the door of a church. A door had slammed, and never more should I now be able to say in his presence. And he quotes from a Middle English poem called The Pearl. But Christi's mercy and Mary and John, these am the ground of all my bliss. In other words, but Christ's mercy and Mary and John, these are the ground of all my joy. And suppose that I was sharing anything of my vision of a great rude screen through which one could see the Holy of Holies. 
So a rude screen is like a large carved wooden screen. I'm so sorry. I have loud dogs in the <laughs> background. Dogs. Yeah. He's not being attacked. I cannot do anything about that. My dogs are keeping me from being attacked right now. Um, <laughs> because so a rude, yeah. So a rude screen is a large carved wooden screen. Um, in medieval churches, it's usually located between the sanctuary and the nave in basically the same place or a very similar place to the location of the iconostas in our, in our temples, right? And functionally, liturgically, it basically served the same purpose. Um, most of the iconostas in uh, Western and, and Northern Europe, most, not all, were uh, destroyed during the Reformation, um, both by reformers, but also uh, many were just taken down uh, during the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation um, as well. Um, That's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but it was usually um, uh, above the the screen. The reason it's called a rude screen. The rude is an old English word for the cross. So above the rude screen, usually suspended, um, there was a large crucifix, and it was flanked on either side by Mary, the Mother of God, and by Saint John the Evangelist. And so you have this, you know, but Christ's mercy, that's the cross and Mary and John right there. So he's quoting from an old English, uh, from a middle English poem about this. Um, uh, and the poem he's quoting is a mystical dream vision. It's written in middle English. Um, and it has to do with sort of being granted a vision of like, a, uh, almost like a theodicy. Uh, but through the lens of the liturgy. And, um, and so in the poem, you know, the, the, the visionary, the, the poet says, um, in other words, that these events and these holy people who are depicted at the top of the root screen, these are the ground of all of his bliss. And what, you know, we can talk a lot more about what are, what's the role of a root screen and an iconostas and things like this, but what Tolkien seemed to intuit here is that the Middle Ages, and specifically the literature of the Middle Ages, functioned like a root screen. Uh, you could say mm-hmm. it framed mm-hmm. the holy. It framed the sacred by because why do we have a screen there? Why do you, why would you have a curtain there? By marking something off as holy, you show mm-hmm. that it is holy. Without that, it's just a stage, right? And so. Th- the culture of the Middle Age. So Oswald Spengler is going to write a the decline of the West. And he's going to say there's this Magian era that bleeds into the Middle Ages, the Magian era, the, the magic of yeah. the magician. Yeah, and yeah. and he, he, he talks about this period being demarcated by the type of temple that is like a cave that 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 walls off the rest of sort of the fallen world from the beauty and bliss, right. Of the liturgy where he says all the meaning comes and he's saying this type of this, this time period, this middle, really, it starts, it's, it's, it's really orthodoxy into the middle ages is actually a protection. He says, mm-hmm. and a place where within those walls, all the great mysteries are kept, but that they're kept too tightly and they die in a sense. And is Tolkien then, going to say something like i'm protected here from the wiles of the rest of the west is he is he in this kind of space and 
Is it relevant to your conversation of, of, of subcreation? Yeah. So, so this is where subcreation comes in. So what Tolkien would have said is probably something more along the lines of the holy is the paradise hasn't moved. Right. Um, the purpose of the rude screen is to conceal it yeah. so that by concealing it, you can reveal it. Right. And this is always the way that God is. I mean, this is the whole, one of the major ideas uh, that underline, uh, underlines all those different parables of the sower that Christ tells in the gospels, right. Is this idea um, is this idea that, that for truth or for beauty or anything like this to be revealed in the world has to first be concealed. And so Tolkien believed that literature could work in this way. And of course, in the context of this quote, he means medieval literature, but the case that I've tried to make in, in things that I've written, essays that I've published, talks that I've given, is that he basically saw this is what his own work had the potential to do. I see. Um, which is to, I mean, you asked me, I think before we started recording, you know, is Tolkien like the, is he like the, the primer on old world thinking or something like that that yeah, was the question he, right, there was something similar right, yeah. yeah yeah and in in a certain way yes because tolkien basically i think saw and he would never i would never say it's anything as as petty a sort of petty as oh well he was just he was just saying you know um you know it you know it's all an allegory like you know narnia or something like that but mm. but but he he wouldn't have said that but he did i think see that by by um taking something, taking beauty and things like this and sort of wrapping it in, not just a literary construct, but a literary construct that actually takes a, a good amount of study to understand and really appreciate, right? The fact that something like the Silmarillion is hard for people to read is actually part of what makes the Silmarillion beautiful, right? Just like- Like, like a catechumen like yeah. should take a while to enter the, yeah. the holy space. Yeah. Shouldn't be a day yeah. or two, it should be a year or two or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, it, it's exactly that kind of thing. I mean, this, again, this whole idea of the parable of the sower, right? So in the parable of the sower, which is a parable about parables, it's a meta parable, mm -hmm. right? Because Christ, his disciples ask him, what's the meaning of this parable? Why do you speak to people in parables? And what's the meaning of this parable? And he says, well, if you don't understand this parable, then how will you understand any other parables? So what he's saying is, this is a meta parable. It's a parable about parables. And the purpose of this parable is to teach you why I teach in parables. Right. So then if you look at the parable itself, he, you see that the, the, anything that springs up easily, anything that springs up quickly, it withers and dies, right? Mm. Or it gets taken and snatched so, away by the evil yeah. one. Yeah. What grows, it's the stuff that falls on good soil and it bears fruit in its season, right? Which according to the very first Psalm, this is what a righteous man does. He bears fruit, not constantly, not immediately, but in his season, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the fact that, uh, uh, and so for Tolkien, the experience of studying the literature and the, and the faith of the Middle Ages was a revelation of holiness to him. And I think that his works can function in a similar way. So this kind of takes us to this idea of subcreation, which is is kind of what I wanted to talk about. And then we spent a lot of time on other things, which is fine because there's always next podcast. Yeah, but um, exactly. But uh, he said uh, he's got this idea, um, this idea, um, and it's explicitly spelled out in a poem of his, and also in a in an essay of his, very well known essay of his called "On Fairy Stories." Um, but then it's also like it's the, one of the main you could say theological, philosophical undercurrents of his entire 
work, like everything he writes, um, is among other things kind of focused on this idea. And this idea is the idea of subcreation. And so basically, his his basic thought is is that um, that we make by the law in which we're made. That's the way he says it in one of his poems. So in other words, we are made in the image of God. God is a maker. God is a creator. Uh, God is a shaper. You know, the old English word uh, for a poet is is a shop, uh, which is related to um, related to our our word for shape. You know, okay. and so yeah, and so the Carter. the yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. so God is a maker. He's a shaper, right? And so we're made in God's image, and therefore we're made to be little creators little you know and so he, the the term he uses is sub creation right creating under the primary creation mm-hmm. and so for tolkien this is why it's not a misuse of human power uh of, of our powers of, of mind and imagination and art and things like this to to tell stories to paint paint pictures to build tables and things like this and ultimately for him that's a defense of his art as a storyteller would you say that there's I was talking to uh, Aiden Hart about this, the iconographer mm-hmm. in England. Is there though an alignment that artists should maybe not consciously try to try to be aware of? Is there a road though on which all the greatest art travels in some ways? Um, therefore, making imagination something more like alignment of images rather than simply um, um, the creation or the the elevation of my image? Shouldn't the images in some way be shaped by something like a middle road? Or is that, is that yeah. Tolkien idea? No. So Tolkien is really conscious of how dangerous this is. Uh, this is one of the things people are always like. Fantagia, right? Like the idea of like fantasy. Yeah, right, right. People are always, people are always not 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 all people but i i did have somebody once who tried to who who wanted to push back on this a little bit i said well tolkien does anything about the dangers of subcreation gone wrong i said oh really and so we started going through the legendarium and of course the best example of of an example of subcreation gone, gone wrong is the forging of the one ring of power right so what is wow. the so the the one ring is this it's a subcreation it's made of the stuff of primary creation uh, which stories are as well. Like we we bring the things from the world that we know into the stories that we tell. You know, I can even do something totally fantastic. The 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 uh, the example Tolkien always likes to use of like an an, an outlandish invention in a story, something like a green sun. Like imagine a world where the sun is green. How is everything? What's different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, I'm taking two things from the primary world that are only yeah. related indirectly, which is the sun and then the color green which they're related, but they're related indirectly. And then I'm, I'm putting them, I'm mashing them up and I'm being like, okay, well, what if there was a dude who's like half horse and half man, right? You know, and we called him a centaur, right? And then he's really smart. So then he's the information centaur. Right. Um, but it still all comes from primary substance. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not yeah. with, it's not unhinged and unrelated. Right. right. Yeah. And so, and so, but the one ring is, is all of these things. It's for, it's a sub creation. It's from primary uh, substance. It's a, it's a great work of art, but what's the, what's it for? It's for domination. It's for forcing your will upon other people. And it's inherently, you know, uh, corrupting and it's, yeah. and it's very like ontology. It's very influences evil. And so, um, so Tolkien is really conscious of how dangerous this is, but what he says is basically that, 
you know, uh, well, you know, just the ancient maxim, right? Abuse does not, uh, does not, uh, uh, what is it? How's it go? Uh, non ipsum. I know it in Latin, but it was basically saying just because something is abused doesn't mean you shouldn't use it properly. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, this is kind of his idea about subcreation. So, again, the exception the kind of doesn't negate yeah. the rule. Yeah, and so something that I've been really interested in is this idea of whether or not, like, a, 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 of attempting to do a sort of orthodox appraisal of Tolkien's theology of subcreation, because it is a theological idea uh, that he has, and it's one of his most potent ones. And you can find a lot of people who write. And they're very clearly influenced by him now, both Orthodox people, Roman Catholic people, Protestant people who are, who are writing influence from him. Uh, but of course, Tolkien's not a Holy Father. Um, and so the, and, and obviously there are a lot of things in the, um, in the Holy Fathers about the dangers of imagination and fantasy and things like this. Mm-hmm. So, so part of the question for me is, well, what kind of dangers, like what kind of imagination are they talking about? What kind of fantasy are they talking about? And it seems to be a combination of things. Um, one of the main uses of fantasy that we fall into most as human beings and that we're explicitly told we shouldn't engage in um, is the idea of sort of like imagining uh, how things could have gone. Well, in that co- this conversation with this person, if they said this, then I would have said this and they would have been really embarrassed. Or... Or man, I'm doing such a good job. What if the British bishop notices me and decides I should become a deacon? Yeah, uh, there is. I heard a story about this, um, or maybe read a story about this. Uh, some someone was like visiting Athos, and it's late at night, and he gets up to go to the bathroom or something. He's walking down, and he hears, you know, this monk in a cell sort of praying the the prayers of ordination to the deacon over himself. You know, which is like an extreme case of spiritual delusion, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so these are, you know, uh, but but it extends to just things like I wish my life was better than it is, or right. man, what if I married that person instead of this person, or things like this. So using our imagination to kind of say, uh, uh, to basically just conjure up a world that's not true. Not I don't mean not true in like the non-factual sense, but not true, you know, in its essence, like down mm-hmm. to its core. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's. It's it's uh it's a fantasy of power. It's a fantasy of dominion over other people. It's a fantasy of, I wish I was something more than what God has made me to be, or I wish I was doing something other than what God has me doing right now. This imply artistry as needing license. So, by that I mean, so a person will create the thing that they already are a part of, or. I will be able to write about what I know in a way that you won't be able to write about. But if you and I both know, say, liturgy, or we both know humility, or we both know whatever, redemption in the same way, in some way, our art will express that. And so to have license is to somehow have become entered into something like a holy life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying saints are the only ones that can create. But I am interested in this idea that there does seem to be a license within the Orthodox East anyway, that says something like go at it because you're participating in a spiritual life yeah. that allows for something beautiful. Now, so the tricky, true? the tricky thing to all of this is how much great art has been made by incredibly degenerate people. I know this is one of the most difficult things to account for. I think, um, I think that, I think that it is true that it is true that orthodoxy 
uh, or, or sorry, it is true that art does need license, I think. Um, and a license in a, let's use the word blessing. Art needs a blessing, right? Mm. Mm. Um, you know, it, in the sense of, in the sense of it needs to be participating in that, which is higher. Um, and the, so, so, uh, let's use the romantics as an example. Yeah. You know, good, good. Byron and good Byron and Shelley and all these mm-hmm, guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, these, these people just lead, led not all the romantics, but many of the romantics led just wildly degenerate lives, uh, just wildly degenerate. And, um, you know, but they produced a lot of really good, lasting, durable art, you know, because we're still looking at those paintings and we're still telling those stories. Um, I think something's got to last at least a hundred years before we can really decide whether or not it's going to be great art. Um, and and obviously uh, that means that Tolkien still has uh, a few, well, actually a lot of Tolkien's er, uh, earlier stuff, like the similar early material was written in the 19 teens. So a lot of his stuff is a hundred years old, but mm-hmm. Um, but I think that Tolkien will stand the test of time. Um, I love Narnia, but I'm not sure that people will still read Narnia in a hundred years. That's kind of a, that's an open question to me. Um, I hope so. But, but all this to say, you've got these incredibly degenerate people who are making good, beautiful, durable works of, uh, of art. And so you have to kind of ask what's going on there. The way that Chesterton threads this needle a little bit is to say something like, the art was the only sane thing about somebody like this. Well, yeah, it's a Dostoevsky idea too, which is yeah. it's because I touched, you know, I was in the garbage. I can tell you exactly yeah. where, yeah. where it begins. Yeah. And, and maybe it's in illustrating that, you know, that essence of their suffering or something that they, they help us to see something beautiful. Well, and if I can say something that sounds maybe a little weird, um, I don't know how kooky or mystical this is going to sound, but uh, here we go. Um, I also think there's, you know, we talk about the danger a lot of of coming to something holy when we're unprepared. Um, you know, this is why in the Orthodox Church we put a, a tremendous amount of focus. I mean, for a, for the layperson, it's almost your entire spiritual life is preparing for communion, right? Yeah. Um, we put a tremendous amount of focus on being ready to receive the body and blood of Christ in mm-hmm. a worthy manner not as worthy people, but in a worthy manner, right? Um, there's a difference. But I think that I think that when you come into contact with beauty, right, in as much as, as beauty is something participating in God, right, as something that comes from God, when you come into contact with beauty in an unprepared way, I think it can destroy your life. Mm. And I think that, I mean, especially like looking at the, you know, Byron and Shelley and people like this who I'm very interested in. And so I've studied them a lot. Um, I think that they really did come into contact with something beauty in a, a beautiful, in a, you could say in a mystical way, um, in a noetic way, but they were, they were not prepared for it. Why couldn't they, why couldn't, if they're created in God's image? Yeah. Well, this, I mean, this is the thing. Yeah. Like why wouldn't it happen? It could. Yeah. And so I think they came into concept contact with something that was really beautiful and um they broke on it and the 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 works of art that have survived are these splinters yeah that makes sense um but they're they're good splinters but there's there's splinters of that that breaking so this is my kind of personal theory about that i guess but it makes sense but yes i think that art does need a blessing it doesn't mean that you need like a censorship panel 
like an like a like a you know church and state kind of censorship. Oh, I'm panel. with you. Yeah, 100%. yeah. Not saying that at all, but I'm saying that uh, as a Christian doing art, what should that look like? Well, it should look like you living living the mystical, ascetic, liturgical life of the church first sure. and foremost, sure. and that's who you are. And then whatever art comes out of that is going to be. It's going to be maybe not the thing that makes blockbusters because it probably won't be something that feeds the lowest common denominator, but it'll be something true. Tell us about before we go, you're doing yeah. a book. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is the, this is kind of the thing uh, um, flowing out of all of this um, is, you know, I've been working for the last 20 years or so on, it's hard to describe what it is because it's not a novel. Um, and this book is just like three or four small excerpts from a very large project. And what that very large project is, is basically um, an attempt uh, that I started about 20 years ago when I was very young. It's an attempt that I started to try to figure out what it, what does it mean for there to be a culture that you belong to? What does it mean for there to be a, wow. uh, uh, what does it mean? You know, because I, I just felt the poverty of the, you know, evangelical fundamentalist culture that I was in. But then I also saw the beauty of this old world culture, uh, which is, we talked about this before. I grew up in, uh, you could say like adjacent to uh, Chinese culture. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, and, yeah. Uh, and it was beautiful and it had its own aesthetic. It had its own, you know, artistic motifs had its own cuisine, all these different things. And they had this beautiful way <laughs> of hanging together. And what I felt was that the culture that I lived in was very compared to that it was very colorless it was very sort of beige you know uh and 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 uh lacking lacking in in anything that i felt like i could pass on to my children right and so one of the things that i tried to do was to to start figuring out and i did this through invention because this is how i am if i if i read a story i like i will try to go and write a story like that story because that will help me understand the story that i enjoyed Right. Yeah. And so sure. through invention, through storytelling, through uh, poetry, like long form narrative poetry, also shorter poetry, like hymns and sonnets. And then, uh, and then eventually even through liturgy, um, trying to, trying to understand like, what is it that makes a culture? What is it, you know, uh, you're talking about old world culture. I love this, this has been one of my main ways of exploring that. So this book that's coming out, is going to be published by darkly bright press. It has, you could say like the first unveilings of some of this mm -hmm. um, it's by no means complete. It's by no means perfect. Um, I could sit on it for the rest of my life and try to perfect it and never publish it. And I would be okay with that. But darkly bright press is run by uh, Christopher Tompkins. Who's a great guy. He's Orthodox, definitely somebody worth talking to. And uh, he, he suggested we do this book project together. So I'm very excited about it. Me too. And um, it's only going to be about 60 or so, 60, 70 pages long. So it's going to be more like a little booklet. Let's say there's a narrative conceit okay, uh, by which all of these stories are held together, but they're within the narrative conceit. They're supposed to be by different authors. So they are different works in different styles. And then there's a critical apparatus on top of this explaining what you could say is my, what we could say were my translation choices. So that's the conceit is this is a book I found or it was given to me and I'm translating it. And so here it is. Um, and you're trying to create an impression. Yes. Of culture. Yes. I see. Rather, I see. Right. It's not linear in terms of. The yeah. yeah. So it's completely nonlinear. Um, and there's uh, there's 
like I said, this first volume that's coming out is very slim. And this is sort of testing the waters. And if people like it and are interested in it, I have enough for several much longer collections. Let's just say I've been working on this stuff for 20 years. So I have, I have a lot oh, of this material. is, Oh, okay. This is, yeah, I have a lot of material. So, so we'll see, we'll see how it does come back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it comes out, maybe, maybe we can have a little chat about it and we can talk about old worlds in fiction and uh, yeah. People like when you come on, they I like uh, coming on. So yeah, I mean, we're a little crowd over here, but we're getting bigger, but mostly they like, I, I think there's something about your honesty. That's really sharp. Yeah. All right, brother. So this was nice. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. We'll do it. Thank we'll you. Keep, we'll keep in touch. Thanks so much for having me on, John. All right, brother. We'll talk. God bless you. Talk Take to you later. Care. Bye. Take care. Shenny's Gagi Marjos to you, Richard Rowland. This is First Things Foundation. This is John Hears. This is our podcast. We love you for coming on. Check out the restaurant. Check out our podcast. Check out our pod class. Become a recurring donor. That would be fantastic. When you become a recurring donor, you get discounts on things like our KP journeys, which take you to places like Georgia, West Africa, Guatemala. But what this is all trying to do is free hands and feet of our field workers, our volunteers who spend two years serving the forgotten among us. Check out our website, www.first-things.org. Au revoir. Nakvamdis. Wow, what's another one? Kambufo. That's Bambara. See you later. Peace out.